0: This is IT Visionaries, your number one source for actionable insights and exclusive interviews with CIOs, CTOs, and CISOs, and many more. I'm your host, Albert Chow, a former CIO, former sales VP, and now podcast host.
1: One thing that makes us unique too in the marketplace is just our focus on the analysts and associates that are really driving the deal flow for the firm it's one of the reasons why i've stuck around at insight for a decade and it's the only place really i've ever worked besides the astronomy lab how
0: does someone start with an astrophysics degree end up as managing director at a venture capital firm thomas crane at insight partners has transitioned from the astronomy lab in college to the vc world early in his career now that he's spent a decade watching companies rise and fall he's got a sense for what gives a business idea or tech innovation staying power According to Thomas, knowing where innovation is happening in next-gen security, DevOps, and automation is really just the beginning. Being able to work with CEOs hand-in-hand to get them to that level is where the real value lies.
1: Thomas Crane, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Albert. Really excited to be here. Listen, we're excited to have you.
0: You have a unique seat in Perspective of all things tech and specifically cybersecurity. But before we go into what you know the best, we're gonna to get to know you a little better. It's time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to us by Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Thomas, this is where we ask you questions outside of the realm of work so our audience can get to know you a little better. Are You ready? Let's do it. All right, listen, you have to be, and I'm pretty confident, you are the only person who's been on our show with a degree in astrophysics. How did you get into
1: that? Uh, you know, I had a very inspirational high school physics teacher. So, you know, thank you to my high school, uh, inspirational high school teachers. And I went to the University of Pennsylvania and I got immediately matched up with a professor who was doing research on undiscovered clusters of galaxies. And I was like, now that sounds like something pretty mind blowing to be able to study and, and spent four years dedicated to. So. I will say by the time I finished uh, my time at Penn, I had a master's degree in astrophysics in four years. And we uh, we had literally discovered close to a dozen unknown clusters of galaxies, which called into question some of the basic and fundamental estimates of uh, baryonic matter in our universe. So some pretty some pretty mind-blowing stuff, but uh, not, not where I spend most of my time today. Although I will say I still have a telescope, which is cool. <laughs> All right.
0: So that's what I was next asking. Do you still... Do you still observe the stars? It sounds like you do.
1: Yeah, you know, I'll go out for the occasional uh, disappointing meteor shower. Unfortunately, I decided to live in the one city in the world where you don't get much of a much of a, <laughs> of a night sky. That that is New York. So, but I managed to get a telescope uh, that uh, is still powerful enough that you can see the rings of uh, the rings of Saturn from my uh, from my apartment in, uh, in in Brooklyn. So that worked out.
0: All right. So I'm not a astrophysicist, nor do I not not, know too much about astrology. How powerful of a telescope do you need to be able to see the rings of Saturn?
1: Uh, You know, it doesn't have to be that. It actually doesn't have to be that powerful. Um, I got one that's probably a little bit overkill. You could probably see like nearby galaxies and other things if you were to take it to a truly night sky. But I had to beef up the power to compensate for the light pollution in the city. So
0: makes total sense. You know, one of the things that you do in your role is you're an investor. And of course, you evaluate companies. What's one of the craziest investments? It doesn't have to be at Insight Partners that you made where you were like, man, I don't really know, but something about this makes me want to invest.
1: Uh, I would say I probably have a a crazier anti-portfolio than I, (laughs) in terms of the (laughs) stories of companies that I met very early in their life cycle that went on to be uh, just absolutely incredible uh, success stories where unfortunately- uh, we did not invest, um, so you know part of the, uh, the the beauty of insight is you spend your first few years out there just meeting entrepreneurs and you just you meet some folks that are really building some incredible stuff and and you know at a young age you're still learning and and frankly it, it, and i'm talking to companies. Uh, I was talking to companies well before they had really commercialized their technology, but to to meet them right when they were on the cusp of getting really huge. I mean, uh, I will say. Even uh, Mr. Elon Musk and I traded emails at one point during my summer internship at Insight. Ultimately, we didn't invest in SpaceX, but he was also a physics major at Penn. So I was sure to work that connection. And he actually replied (laughs) to my email, which I appreciated.
0: (laughs) That's pretty awesome. Listen, the anti-portfolio is always really good because I'm with you. When you first hear about a company before it has traction – you got to admit, some of the things just sound insane. I remember the first time I heard about eBay uh, being a 16-year-old kid and I was thinking to myself, what do you mean I just pay this person across the country some money and they're going to ship me their mountain bike? And I was like, "That. what if they don't ship it? Like I had all these questions, like I don't understand how this is going to work.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say the same thing about uh, robotic process automation. I won't name a specific company, but everyone's like, you know, robots, software robots? Like what? And of course, now we've got many deck corn or, or unicorn type companies that have, have blown, uh, that sector out of the water. So, you know, sometimes, and, and it just, you have to reimagine the art of the possible in my, and my world. And we never, you know, lose that humility about knowing that we don't know anything. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> I,
0: I had a friend as well that went into robotic process automation and he was like, Hey, you should join me. In this service company's gonna be great. I'm like, I don't understand what you're talking about. A robot on the computer. Like, what does that mean? and he's like no it's in the software and i was like oh, <laughs> i don't know <laughs> well thomas i appreciate you sharing a little bit about yourself you know being vulnerable is one of the, and humble is one of the things that we see that's common trait among the most successful investors because it gives you that hunger and curiosity let me ask you this because we your insight partners is a unique company because it's not quite like the other uh venture cap firms where it's usually typically a smaller team we looked at the sub insight partner says it looks like over 400 team members. Give us an idea. Tell us what your company, what is your
1: company all about? What's it do? How you guys do it? Totally. So uh, I have the, the benefit of some historical perspective here. So I've been with Insight uh, literally this month is my 10-year anniversary since I was a, a summer intern uh, back in 2012. And you know when I joined Insight, we were probably 40 or 50 people investing out of a $2 billion fund. Today, you're correct. We're, we're north of 400 people. We're investing out of a a uh, twenty billion dollar fund, and so I've seen us go through our own kind of scale up journey in terms of scaling out the team and uh, the number of investments that we're doing each year has grown uh, sequentially. But we've actually been remarkably consistent in terms of our focus, which is finding amazing software companies and entrepreneurs. Usually, they're next gen oriented technologies built uh, around the premise that you know cloud delivered software is just better than uh, many of its on premise incumbents and that cloud penetration is still a fraction of where it is in the future. And so that, you know, that has been really our mantra from the beginning is just go out there, find great companies, doesn't matter about where the geography is, doesn't matter you know, what specifically within software, if it's B2B SaaS, we're interested. And, and frankly, even it doesn't matter what stage it is. I'd say earlier on when I first joined Insight, we were tilted a little bit more toward growth equity and private equity in terms of deal size. So we would do a lot of control transactions and buyouts and rollups. Um, We still do have that that practice as part of our portfolio. It's still and it's very much a a growth oriented uh, segment of that market. Um, But we've gone earlier and we've gone into Series B and even Series A and and earlier stage than that. And, you know, in in that case, again, we just are looking to find great entrepreneurs to work with. But, you know, the idea is that the machinery that we can bring to bear to help the companies that scales as the companies scale, because we see companies everywhere from one to five to 10 to 20 to 50 to 100 to even a billion in revenue. And we know what works. And in some cases, when we're the majority owners in those companies, it's really on us to to show that that, uh, that value add is not just a theoretical marketing value add, but it actually has to work because uh, in those cases, the buck really stops with us in terms of the risk ownership. So, you know, that's a, that's a little bit of insight uh, in a nutshell in terms of our positioning. But I just say, you know, one thing that makes us unique too in the marketplace is just our focus on the uh, analysts and associates that are really driving the deal flow for the firm. And you know, it's one of the reasons why I've stuck around at Insight for a decade, and it's the only place really I've ever worked besides the astronomy lab. Um, <laughs> in the sense that you know, we look at those, you know, those folks and, and sort of the, the outbound team to really guide our investment strategy. They are the tip of the spear of what's out there. They're the ones that are building those relationships and the shepherds of entrepreneurs through the insight system, both through an investment process, but of course post-investment and beyond all the way to liquidity. And I've made some lifelong friendships um, and relationships with with CEOs that that have gone through that journey uh, through with me and, and have trusted me and entrusted their businesses with me Uh, Over a half-decade period, whole period, and so um, just really excited to be a part of some of those success stories. And I think it's core to our DNA is looking to our junior people and and the young people on our team to drive the future of of where we're going. Yeah, and you know that's
0: that's what's interesting about you is you have I guess seen it all at the company, right? You said from the very beginning at your internships, you're writing and trading emails with which who would become some of the most influential. Uh, CEOs of our time. And for yourself now as the managing director or managing partner, how many, I guess, where do you personally, I guess, invest your time? Is it more like building up the analysts inside of the company? Are you still meeting with startup companies? Do you only work with companies that are at, you know, 500 million and north of revenue? Like where does your time spent now?
1: Yeah, look, I mean, my, my time is, is in terms of the companies I work with is very much a reflection of our own portfolio construction, which is, you know, there's a segment in A and B and some of the more company fundamental company building and product market fit types of questions. There's uh, quite a bit in kind of more of the growth stage where it's all about how do you go from a handful of sales reps to an army of sales reps uh, located internationally and do that in an efficient but effective way and avoiding the pitfalls of, you know, that we've seen through our own experience and all the way through to, you know, late stage buyout. I mean, there's actually multiple examples in my portfolio of companies where we actually led uh, a venture type of investment, call it a, a minority investment, um, and ultimately became a source of uh, of an exit for that company. But the founder CEOs remain as the founder CEOs and continue to drive the company to the next milestone. And the idea that they can come to Insight, it's sort of a it's a different option. It's not selling to a strategic. It's not selling to purely to a, a buyout shop. It's almost like. You're doubling down on the partnership that's already working, but you can kind of consolidate the focus, consolidate the cap table, and orient the cap table to drive and optimize the long-term success and outcome of the company. So those are the kinds of situations that we really look for because um, they can be you know, very creative, but they can also just be very fulfilling in terms of seeing those companies go all the way absolute to the distance and not having to punch out early just because you know, it, you know, we got caught in a certain part of our hold, hold cycle
0: well listen you have an interesting perspective because you've gotten a chance to see of course companies succeed you've also of course seen companies fail and and not make it and you have interesting expertise um directly from the site it says you have focus areas of cybersecurity, devops it automation application software you know i'd love to kind of hear what you're seeing the market want you had mentioned earlier that cloud for example cloud is just beginning which sounds insane we keep going over this factoid with a lot of different people uh, that are on our show, but it's every time someone tells me the number or what they think the number is, it's always mind blowing. So I got to ask right now, what percentage of workloads are in the cloud? We've had people say it's un, you know, all kinds of numbers, but I've never heard anyone say a big number. <laughs> what, what, like, we're still basically just the beginning. In your estimation, what percentage of workloads are in the cloud today?
1: Yeah, I think I mentioned, I think it's close to 20% today. If uh, you know, 20%, but I think that also understates the fact that, like, this is just the first wave of cloud, yeah. right? I mean, there's going to be, I think, tertiary or uh, secondary tertiary waves of, of cloud adoption. Companies might even boomerang back and say, hey, wait, <laughs> I moved all this stuff into AWS or whoever, and now I realize that actually maybe there may be an economic trade-off for me to actually insource it and have my own cloud. And so there's going to be all sorts of boomerangs back and forth around that. But if you look at SaaS versus kind of on-prem software penetration, that's where I also think there's just a tremendous amount of opportunity. And, you know, you could extrapolate that to, you know, uh, individual mobile devices, but also to edge compute and what's happening in terms of the internet of things and connected connected devices um, that just make the surface area of this uh, just so broad and and just still such early days in the landscape. Yeah. And you already
0: hinted on earlier with the the RPA category. When you see these different categories emerging, what are you seeing in regards to like, Categories that are getting a lot of product market fit categories there where there's a lot of businesses that are getting a lot of enterprise value out of emerging categories where you're like, wow, this is going to be a new sector. When you see how software is being built, because I think that's the most unique part about being inside of a venture cap firm like yours is you get to see basically how the future is going to be built. It's like what tools, what tooling will the future be built with? And it's like you invest in those tools of course it's going to work it tends to work out what are you seeing in regards of adoption like how widespread is rpa how widespread is some of these iot applications like what are you seeing in regards to like picking up in velocity of how we build how we're going to build the future basically
1: totally totally i mean look i would say fundamentally um going back to the, the point of humility and and uh, a, a broad anti-portfolio you know, we we, we've realized that we're not great at predicting the future here (laughs) and and sitting around and, and pretending to have a crystal ball. So, I mean, at the end of the day, we're we're looking at the leading indicators of commercial momentum to inform a huge degree of our investment hypotheses. And then, you know, the benefit of having such a broad portfolio is we've got just a really deep bench of experts and other entrepreneurs that live this day in, day day out that we can draw from in terms of, you know, is this truly a disruptive technology approach to the market or is this an also ran and kind of an iterative improvement upon a very established and mature kind of solution set. And so, you know, we're, we're constantly challenging ourselves on that, but ultimately if the momentum is there, companies are doubling, you can usually sense there's some degree of kind of pull from the market then that's usually a pretty good indicator that there's a disruptive potential or, or an exciting market opportunity in front of the company. And I would just say there's so much secular change within infrastructure and cyber where I spend a lot of my time that it's not hard to imagine that the solutions that were built around this paradigm of data center security and, you know, a perimeter that you need to fortify and build up uh, are kind of all out the window in the world of, cloud and distributed workloads and ephemeral, you know, container uh, containers and remote employees. And so um, it just requires a totally new paradigm. And, you know, at the same time, while everything is totally dispersed, it's also as interconnected as it's ever been. And that notion of the software supply chain and, and just interconnection among companies and commercial supply chain um, is, has never been more poignant than it is today. Give us an
0: idea of, you know, what you're seeing fundamentally change uh, you mentioned, you know, commercial viability is often the, the best way to evaluate this. What are some sectors that you're seeing, like, hey, they're, they're getting some serious velocity, which you think is going to impact, you know, more companies in the future?
1: So yeah, I'll reference an investment we made uh, earlier that we announced earlier this week called Perimeter 81. Uh, it was a follow-on investment that we did alongside um, the lead investor B Capital, but we invested two years ago um, as a lead investor, and and the idea is. As you have um, highly distributed workforces, and you know no longer a centralized kind of network architecture around going into the office, and there's kind of the central office, and maybe there's some hubs that are connected to the central office. It's just your endpoint, your computer directly to the cloud or directly to the SaaS application. The idea is now the the new corporate network is the open internet, and yeah. you know there's a tremendous amount of need that comes around that in terms of. What are the security controls and visibility that goes with that? But you know, how do you also deliver, uh, you know, an experience that your business users can work around? I mean, it doesn't make sense to connect from a from my home to through a VPN to a central network when you know that ne- central network may not even be relevant five to ten years in the future. And fortunately, there have been some foundational technologies that have enabled this and software defined wide area networking SD WAN as, as we call it has been you know a key kind of initial innovation that's enabled that. But that's where, you know, we see a huge degree of opportunity around kind of network security, which besides endpoint is probably, you know, the biggest market out there within cyber.
0: Yeah. So cybersecurity is one of the hottest areas and categories. It's one of the things that becomes you know, I guess it's every company's problem now, meaning it can quickly become everyone's problem. And we see a lot of investment there. Um, according to a research that was done amongst CISOs, uh, this was done by our lead sponsor, Salesforce. It was a plat- It's the uh, top data security trends for 2022. They were asked CISOs, what different strategies are they going to invest in and become the most effective in defending your organization against cybersecurity attacks? A lot of them talked about, 77% talked about multi-factor authentication, which I thought was interesting because I always assumed that would be 100% in the past. (laughs) I was kind of taken aback that this was something they were going to invest in, right? 72% identity and access management, 60% data encryption. So it's a lot of the things that we would normally see. Is that something that you're seeing in the cybersecurity space where it's like, are, are companies continuing to invest in tried and true tools or are you seeing new emerging technologies forming? Because... What you just talked about Priating one, being able to stand up and securing networks wherever they may be. I know there's a lot of come because I was at part of one in 2018. there's a lot of companies trying to do that. It looks like it sounds like not everyone's it's just not quite figured out yet, I guess, because it requires probably equipment requirements and it's not truly to the software layer yet. Uh, that's one guess that I'm guess, guessing is potentially a problem.
1: That's probably why it didn't work back then. Today, it's all software, so that helps. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. But like, give us an idea of where where do you see these investments going because, um, or, or in your perspective, like some of these areas, because in that security trends, it sounded like they were doing a lot of like uh, things that maybe people already knew about, but I didn't know if it's just because those companies are getting that much better or there hasn't been let's say a widespread adopted better solution yet that as far as you could tell.
1: Yeah. Look, I mean, I think you need to have a 10 X improvement on the incumbent technology for you to actually have a viable kind of quote, next gen approach. I mean, you could take something as kind of ubiquitous as endpoint security, right. Or, or antivirus, you know, the, the incumbents there, the last gen, the, you know, McAfee, Symantec, like those were rules-based approaches. They would go out, do research, find signatures of bad stuff, when, because it was out in the wild, then they'd embed it back. And so then you'd do the scan. And, you know, everyone loves those old school cybersecurity scans on your laptop. They take forever. And they'd be like, <laughs> oh, we mashed it up. There's a virus here. Yeah. So it's like, I, you know, it was a very reactive approach. And, you know, it was a ubiquitous because you had to have it. But those solutions had efficacy rates in, you know, the 50, 60 percentage range. And so, then you had, you know, AI-based anti-malware come onto the scene and companies like Silence, um, which we were investors in and, and sold the Blackberry, CrowdStrike, of course, and, and now Sentinel One, where, we, where we, we went on to also become investors. And this is where you can actually apply machine learning to a setting in the wild where you're able to take those efficacy rates of the incumbent technologies and bring them from 50 percent to 99 and 59 percent from an anti-malware perspective using machine learning algorithms on literally the ones and zeros of the executable binary of the file. And so it's just a fundamentally just new paradigm of how you can approach that technology. You could say the same thing with um, intrusion detection systems and traditional ids ips and now you apply that to what you know what is called now you know uh network um traffic analysis and again you're applying machine learning and ai to detect um you know what what are truly anomalies and, and potentially malicious anomalies in a way that was never possible before when you were just kind of checking signatures of of known bad against you know what's in what's out there in your network and so so there are these true like 10x improvements in technology, and a lot of them have been AI enabled that have come and, and really taken the market by storm. But you know, going back to your question, like, yeah, there is just a ton of blocking and tackling still to be done. There's still a shocking amount of uh, uh, lack of adoption around sort of you know simple hygiene. And I mean I, I'll reference an article that I think came out in The Wall Street Journal earlier this week that it was like, what are, the, what are the top mistakes that lead to breaches at enterprises? And, you know, some of them were remarkably simple things like, you know, have you updated your certificates, your IT certs? Um, we have a company that does that, by the way, called Key Factor, which is yeah. doing super well. But those are ticking time bombs in your infrastructure and they, they're meant to expire. So if you're not ahead of that, it can create huge security vulnerabilities or operational issues. Uh, another one they mentioned was, um, you know, updating updating the software on your endpoint. You know, like, have you patched? <laughs> uh, we have another company that does that, by the way, Automox, it's remote cloud-based patching. And so it's, um, but like, again, very simple. And, uh, you know, the last one, I think it was uh, vendor risk, which is another really hot topic. We have a company called Prevalent um, that helps automate the vendor risk assessment process in third parties. You know, the prototypical example being Target, which got breached via their HVAC provider, who happened to have, you know, the crown jewels access to the network. So they go from some small provider into, you know, the corporate network of a global 2000 company. Um, So, you know, you're only as weak as your weakest link. And that can be, you know, this long tail of thousands of third parties that you have. These are the kinds of blocking and tackling that they sound simple. But if you're not ahead of them, those are the exposure points that can be potentially catastrophic.
0: There you go. I mean, it sounds, sounds, you know, we had a, we had another, I forget who it is. I'll have to look it up and put it in the show notes, but we had another one of the CISOs come on our show and talk about how like, Hey, you might be looking for that next great vendor solution. But the reality is, is like, you're not even doing what you need to do today that would help really secure your business. So don't worry about what they're doing over there, fix your own stuff and get going. When you see, you know, one of the things I, I hear in your, your explanation of things like what, What's worth investing in, whether it's company on a commercially viable basis or inside partners for funding, is this idea that it's got to be 10x better. I'm curious because we see every year there's new products and services being launched, being backed. How fast do you think innovation is occurring are like the new products of today really 10x better than the ones of the past like it are people innovating that much faster like on a year over year basis too because we have the existing companies that are also trying to push the edge right some of the companies you've backed maybe at series a or b level like every year they're trying to get better and better and better you know i, I feel like you know like you have moore's law talking about how like the cost of memory is going to reduce by half every year or whatever the case may be like is innovation expanding at that level where it's like each year's version is like it's getting that much better? Because on sometimes I think it's not. But then I look back, you know, I, like when we look at a hardware level, if I look back to a computer five years ago, like it's unbelievable how slow it is compared to what a computer is today. Is software innovation, do you see it moving that fast or is it more marketing hype or because there's a lot of companies claiming to have breakthroughs?
1: Look, I mean, even whatever it was 20 years ago, if you were starting one of the first generation SaaS companies, you still had to buy the equipment, you know, and, and <laughs> yeah. set it up and like host it like in your garage or whatever. So now not only is that compute readily available, but all the tools and services that you need as a developer engineer to just get up and running. And in fact, today's developers, they're, they're barely writing code. I mean, I I... I had um, one of our summer interns actually told me a funny thing. He's like, you know, I studied computer science at like a top university, but I don't think I could, I don't think I could actually write code to build an application because all I do is look up, you know, what are the components I need to just assemble that application online, and then you know, that's the application. But it's actually that's how software development is done today. It's it's yeah. it's aggregating components that have already been pre built that are battle tested, and open source is a huge component of that. And, you know, that just enables innovation to happen at such a faster rate because, you know, the barriers to entry to actually starting something have been lowered drastically. And at the same time, you've got incumbents that were built more in this world of client server and, you know, where they were kind of, everything was a big monolith in terms of the architecture. And that's a very disruptible premise to go against when you're a next-gen company starting from scratch without, you know, sort of the the burden of the tech debt to work, uh, to work against you. And so, so I truly do believe there is a a much faster pace of innovation happening today, owing in part to these kinds of development tools and just sort of the methodology of developing software and SaaS software that uh, you know has enabled it to come faster. And I, I would also say there are certain ecosystems that have really cultivated this in an effective way. So we've been very um, we've been very active in kind of companies built on top of Force.com, for example. And you know it's a great way to jumpstart not just, you know, the engineering and, and, you know, application building from an innovation perspective, but also the commercialization of it. And so this is not meant to be a, a commercial for Salesforce and in, in terms of my yeah. response here, but, you know, even as a venture capital, that's a capitalist, that's an attractive value proposition in terms of the speed to market and speed of um, of innovation. So.
0: Well, I agree with that part hundred percent. I mean, I've been, so my personal foray into that was not for Salesforce, but it was for Shopify. I built an app for Shopify. I mean, it was never meant to be a huge company, but it generated revenue. Like, I mean, it was like five days. Like I it went from like, it was yeah, yeah. it, it sp- spent yeah. five days making it. And I was plugging and selling subs right out the gate. I was like, I couldn't believe it. Like, this is awesome. Totally. <laughs> The thing that you just mentioned, software supply, I just start thinking about software supply chain because you mm-hmm. mentioned it earlier in the conversation as well. And we had interviewed uh, one of the co-founders of Sonatype and they were talking about how like-
1: They coined the phrase, by the way. I didn't invent it. That was all Sonatype.
0: Yeah, yeah. They're they they they're the ones that came and said like, dude, software today is no one's actually coding anything. They're just kind of like Legos. Like, oh, I want a OAuth. Oh, I want uh, image recognition or I'm going to go use this service to do some data tables. And they're putting it together. And when one piece fails, they were talking about how, because software is cobbled together, kind of like the way you described, is sometimes companies don't recognize and they can't spot their vulnerabilities because they're not sure or they don't realize that the component part that they've put in, or maybe a developer like two years ago put in, has been compromised. And they like don't even know it's in their code.
1: Yeah, absolutely true. And it's how everyone's building applications today. And so- that's why you get these kinds of critical vulnerabilities, like Log4j, that yep. come out, and you know they require a tremendous amount of cleanup work. The other thing is just getting ahead of what are those new vulnerabilities before the bad guys start abusing yeah. them. Those so-called zero days. We have a really cool company called Recorded Future. That um, it's a great example. I mean, when uh, we invested in the company as a minority venture investor, and ultimately became um, a majority shareholder in the company um, throughout the course of the life cycle of our investment, it's a really great story in terms of partnering with the founding team who's still uh, leading the company today, but through just a transformational evolution in terms of the company's scale. But at the same time, that scale has enabled them to track and identify threats in a way, and security cybersecurity threats in a way that no other company has been able to in the past. And so it's just been one of those sort of self-reinforcing, the more data you have, the better you are at kind of understanding new patterns that are emerging out there in the wild. And, you know, they're scanning everything from open web to dark web, deep dark web, and um, and doing it in a machine-oriented way so the dragnet is totally automated. And that's you know, created a really interesting sort of response on the part of folks that need to be proactive about, do I have you know, exposure to these kinds of zero days that I may not have known about beforehand?
0: All right. So now I got to ask, because you clearly have good at least understanding or conceptual understanding of how, the, how software development is going to come together. Meaning you're able to recognize like, Hey, when this, as this scales, this problem will open as this problem closes, you know, the reality is another problem or an opportunity will open you yourself. Were you a software developer or did you develop software uh, prior to insight partners? Were you building things or were you just studying physics?
1: No, I mean, that was actually the, the exact transition that, that led me to insight. So uh, I like to say, we were doing machine learning in the, in the astronomy lab before it was cool. Um, back in 2011, we were doing it for supernova detection based on images. So literally, it was just images of the night sky one day, one day later. I'm like, do you see a flash that happened? So because supernova are pretty important in terms of determining the age of the universe and those kinds of measurements. So we were, it was really applied machine learning. We we're doing Monte Carlo simulations as well. I was building MySQL databases. I remember very early on and. My time, my summer internship at Insight. Everyone was talking about NoSQL. I was like, "Well, wow, I was just building MySQL. What is this NoSQL thing?" Like, <laughs> uh, and it, it got me very excited. And I would say the other, the other aspect, which I think has played well in terms of my own career progression at Insight, is when when I joined the firm. You know, a lot of my peers and, and fellow summer interns. You know, uh, we're, you know, talking more about e-commerce and kind of some of the sexier consumer facing uh, companies out there. So uh, Living Social was one of our notable investments at the time or or Tumblr and, of course, Twitter now. But uh, I would say I was kind of more focused on the infrastructure stuff. And we had had we built a really great infrastructure portfolio. And I just happened to be more, I guess, uh, less afraid to talk about that and, and kind of focus on that early on. Uh, which has been great because 10 years ago, I don't think a lot of VCs and mainstream VCs were talking about cyber and dev tools and IT cloud in the way that they talk about them today. It was really kind of almost like a back office thing that was like almost, it was like a vertical app. It wasn't even considered its own sector in the same, uh, with the same kind of cachet as it is today.
0: Oh yeah, listen, I was in the same problem as I guess your peers that you mentioned. Living, by the way, for those who don't know, living social was like Groupon back in the day. <laughs> I don't know if it's around anymore, right? Hey, listen, consumers are fickle. Like we as consumers, like listen, we move from one thing to the other very, very quickly. But I like Thomas, I agree with you. Now that I know what I know, I would have invested more of my time and energy building tools to help people build. We interviewed one of the one of the companies, it's like a there's a lot of companies now that are like API first, orchestration layer type products where it's like, hey, If you want to integrate smart email in your system, like you would build and integrate Nylas or something like that. Like you wouldn't build your own like email AI recognition tool. Mm -hmm. There's like so many developers now developing for developers, uh, HashiCorp being a huge one, right? Like that's... I invested in HashiCorp after like, it seemed like every person I knew, knew how to use it. Like every developer I talked to, like, we all use HashiCorp to set up our uh, infrastructure. Like, well, what is this thing? I don't know what it is. Like they built a tool for tools, uh, for building, uh, tools for building. Is that kind of at the core of your personal investment thesis or do you, do you like consumer? Uh, consumer is one of those things that's like really sexy because, of course, yeah, of course, I want to build like you know the next Yeti. Like it's just it's just a cup, but you know it's a billion dollar cup.
1: <laughs> no, look, I mean we have an amazing consumer portfolio. It's not where I spend much of my own time personally. Um, uh, I just the the predictability of B two B enterprise SaaS is just. It's something that uh, enables me to sleep better at night, I guess. Uh, so, but yeah, I mean, the idea of catering to this growing developer community and every company needs to be a software company. If you look at the replacement yeah. rate of, yeah. you know, the Fortune 100 and and what that implies in terms of the focus and need to focus on innovation, I think that all speaks for itself in terms of that market opportunity over the next, you know, five to ten years and beyond, frankly. So I am also
0: curious, how much time do you get to spend now with, let's say, emerging founders? Do you you get to do that as much or is that um, a smaller part of your day now?
1: No, I mean, that again, going back to the original mantra of Insight, like the lifeblood of our firm and of our strategy is, you know, the analysts and associates that are on the phone sourcing, reaching out to companies every day. And, uh, you know, we'd be doing ourselves a disservice if we didn't spend a disproportionate of our own time you know enabling that team and and yeah. helping make sure that the stuff that they're finding is getting properly routed through the system so i you know I, I, I there is not a day that goes by in in my life at insight where i don't spend time with multiple emerging founders it's the most uh, one of the most fulfilling parts of my job and then of course the companies where we actually do uh, making investment, helping them think through some of those challenges where I feel like I've actually seen the movie before a few times now. And, you know, sometimes yeah, sometimes yeah. I get teased that I work with a lot of companies. It's true. But I actually think that makes me more effective because I've got a better sense of what is market, what are common pitfalls and what are the ways to avoid them? So it's been um, incredibly rewarding in that perspective.
0: So I got to ask when there's, when a company is you know, just emerging, like they're just getting started. There's no, there's no, like you said, there's no revenue to like justify where they're going. They're kind of building with a vision that says, Hey, I want to go there. What I guess are you listening for? What are you looking for in the founder? I, we've heard from multiple VCs, you know, it's, it's undying dedication, some type of knowledge about the product or the marketplace that they seemingly, the founder seemingly knows that no one else knows. What are you personally looking for uh, when you start hearing these things? Because as you know, a lot of ideas, just they're not going to work out. Like that's just the reality of the business, business in general, right? A lot of things are great ideas, but for whatever reason, the marketplace doesn't doesn't comply. What are you looking for to find that next, like that emerging
1: startup founder? What are some of the things you look for? I, I mean, I'm looking exactly to bridge the gap you're just talking about, which is, you know. Entrepreneurs, especially in early stage companies, they're so excited to talk about why their technology is going to be disruptive relative to the incumbents and all of the you know amazing advantages that it will enable. But if they're not connecting it to the commercial and revenue side of the equation, even if it's pre-revenue, if they haven't thought through that progression, then that to me is just you know something I take into consideration of whether we lean in early or. We, you know, let let things play out a little bit longer. And I think, you know, even if you're $50,000 of of monthly recurring revenue, if you're thinking about how you go from 50 to 100, and that's like a central part of your kind of pitch to me, then that to me speaks, you know, that actually speaks volumes about you're tying those, you're you're connecting those dots from. Not only do we have disruptive technology, but we're we know how we're going to get it into the hands of our customers and users in a repeatable fashion. So, and not just, you know, one or two channels that we kind of got, got big hits with, but this is how we're gonna scale it up and blow it out. All right. My
0: final question for you is, it was great hearing this cause this, this ties into founders and working with founders building and trying to shake up markets. What is your tolerance for failure? And let me bring it to perspective. One of my favorite entrepreneurs I've ever read about is James Dyson. James Dyson famously developed 3,127 prototypes before he actually figured out the Dyson vacuum. Now, that's a mind-boggling number because I feel like I wouldn't have made it past 100. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think I would have made 100. At number 100, I'd be like, I'm done. I can't figure (laughs) this out, right? He went to 3,127. Along the way, someone had to be there supporting this endeavor. What would it take... For you to continue to support an entrepreneur after 3,127 failures, or would it, would you have tapped out a while ago, and like, hey man, I don't think you got it?
1: Look, I mean, the mantra at Insight here, in terms of our appetite for failure, if you will, is you know rather do an investment that had a sound thesis and good decision making uh, upfront that that underperformed than you know overthink not doing the investment that goes on to be the next. HashiCorp or ServiceNow or whoever, right? And so, unfortunately, there there are countless examples of us not being able to get out of our own way and overthinking all the reasons of why it won't work. And it's always easy to take the negative view. It's always easy to say, this is why it's not going to work, right? And our job is to, with good decision-making and good informed hypotheses, you know, think of what is the art of the possible? And, you know, can you imagine that ideal state of the world that enables us to become, you know, a 10 X plus type of company. And we're always in every single one of our investment theses. And this is something we've made standard uh, a little bit of the sausage making for you. But we're always looking for what is the tail? What is that? You know, okay, this is the expected case. This is, you know, uh, sort of status quo execution. This is sort of the downside case. This is the execution's good, the upside case. But what is that tail case? How do we get really lucky? And if that tail isn't there or, it's not, you know, sound, then, then, you know, we will probably consider that in the investment. So,
0: yeah. Yeah. That we've had, I've asked that question to a couple of different people and it's like, dude, you'd have to really, really believe we've heard all kinds of different answers. Do you think you could ever stand by a friend? Let's take insight partners out of it. Like what if your friends was building software. It was like, God, just, this is my 3000th version of it. Like i still, still haven't figured it out. I'm getting closer, Thomas, but I haven't gotten there. Would you, what would you say? Hey, keep going or, Hey, it might be time to tap out.
1: I have plenty of friends that are entrepreneurs and I know they've all had their dark days and they're all killing it now. So there you go. Keep going. I would say stick with it. Yeah. (laughs) I
0: love it. Thomas, it was awesome having you on the show, man. I appreciate you sharing everything that you've gone through and experienced from physics to being that intern chatting with Elon Musk to where you are today a Managing Partner at Insight Partners. It is pretty exciting to see the company. For those who want to check it out, Insight Partners, their website is exactly as spelled, uh, and you can check out some of Thomas's investments in addition to their company. Pretty exciting stuff. Thanks for being
1: on the show today. Thank you very much, Albert. Excellent, it was awesome having you.